Welcome to So Dead, a true crime comedy podcast that is not hosted by Karen Kilgariff or Georgia Hardstark. I'm Jen Carpenter. And I'm Danny Fairman. Happy True Crime Tuesday. And happy Taco Tuesday, girls and boys. <laughs> so we are just a few days out from a very exciting trip. I'm so excited. We are going to see the My Favorite Murder live show in Detroit. Yes. And for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, My Favorite Murder is the true crime comedy podcast. It is. Hosted by the wonderful Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark. Mm -hmm. And the inspiration for a whole lot of us lady podcasters out here today. For sure. They've, they're trailblazers. They've they paved are. the way. And they're so fucking funny. They're so funny. And they, also like, responsible for a lot of our bad language. So yeah. Thanks ladies. Thanks guys. <laughs> Uh, so, Danny, when did you start listening to My Favorite Murder? Oh, my gosh. Um, maybe a year and a half ago? year and a half ago. So, almost kind of towards the beginning? Um, no, I think they were on, like, episode 50 or 60. Oh. So, I had a lot to binge. Not quite as much as I had to binge. But, <laughs> um, so, the podcast began... At the beginning of 2016, mm -hmm. um, and they do, I, I think at first bi-weekly episodes, but now they're weekly episodes where they tell each other stories about uh, crime, true crime. Mm -hmm. And then um, they do mini-sodes. They do mini-sodes. Those are so fun. People send in their stories, and it's just a lot of fun. If you know, then you know. If right. you don't know, uh, as soon as Get this episode is over, go download the first episode of My Favorite Murder, and uh, you're about 160 episodes behind, so... Plus Minnesotes, so mm -hmm. have fun with that. Right. Um, I just started listening. I'm, I'm a newer listener. I started listening kind of at the beginning of 2018, so it's been about a year. Okay. Um, took a long time to get all caught up on everything. Are and you caught up? Yes. Oh, nice. Uh, but for me, uh, I was determined to, I'm newly caught up. I was determined to be caught up before we went to see them. Okay. So, um, for me, I think one of my favorite things is I felt like I was on, um, it reminded me of the movie Never Ending Story, you know, where the readers I were with that him. that movie. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I've <sighs> never liked that movie. My brother loved it, so I, I watched it a lot. I wouldn't say I loved it or hated it, but the whole thing of like I was there with you the whole time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, episode one, they're talking about that Lifetime movie. I know my first name is Steven, and they couldn't remember his name. Yes. And it was driving me crazy. I'm sitting there yelling, it's Steven, it's Steven. Right. Um, and then just everything, you know, I was a year and a half behind. So they're watching the OJ, the people versus OJ Simpson. Right. And making a murderer and all of these shows that they're watching and news that they're talking about. These were all things that I was watching and talking about as they were going on. And I had nobody to share them with because everyone right. thinks I'm weird and morbid. I know. Um, and it's so it was fun for me. to get those looks, isn't it? No. It was fun for me to come in later and mm -hmm. be like, oh, here's my people. And they were doing the same thing as me all this time. Right. Right. So, they made us feel normal. We're or, not. Or just Accepted. not alone in our weirdness. Right. Um, and, and that was, I think, my favorite part. I think it murder. is the new normal, though. I think so. I agree with you. And I think that's one of the things that we kind of bonded over. Danny was the first person I met in real life that listened to the podcast and was mm -hmm. a fan. Mm -hmm. Huge so, fan. Yeah. So. So today... 
we're going to talk about our favorite episodes. Yeah, our favorite Michigan episodes covered on My Favorite Murder. So we'll retell the stories. So mine is episode 40, where they talk about the Jenny Jones murder. So I remember watching Jenny Jones growing up. Jenny Jones was a talk show. For all you youngins out there, you might only remember like Oprah. Yeah, but they're like, yeah, in the 90s. Yeah, there was like Jenny Jones, Ricky Lake. Donahue. Sally. Sally, Jesse, Raphael. Mm. Not a Ninja Turtle. No. No, she was not. She kind of looked like a Ninja Turtle. No, she had those big red glasses. Yeah. I loved those talk shows. A Sick Day always consisted of me like watching all of those And The Price is Right. Yes. Yes. Always. Okay. And, okay. So, yeah, they didn't cover topics like Ellen and Oprah. They did scandals and bizarre topics. Um, Kind of like Jerry Springer before Jerry Springer got completely fucking fake. Yeah, like with the Maury show, too. Yes. Like, just bizarre stuff. Yes. It's very, like, tabloidy. Lots of surprise... Surprise guests. Surprise guests, surprise episodes, people... Mm -hmm. With a scandal. The movie Hope Floats. Can we sidebar real quick? Yes, that is exactly what it is. The movie Hope Floats where they bring you on thinking you're getting a makeover and, oh, nope, your husband's leaving you type of thing. Yes. Uh, My sidebar about that is that I just started watching, and I'm way, way behind, the show Good Girls. It is amazing. I've only seen episode one. You have to watch it. First of all, it's set in Michigan, which is awesome. Um, One of the stars is Matthew Lillard, who was born and raised in Lansing. Mm -hmm. Born in Lansing, not raised here. I'm a liar. Um, Born in Lansing. (laughs) I don't think Um, you're a liar. it's such a good show. I love it. And one of the stars is Mae Whitman, Mm -hmm. who was the little girl, Bernice, in Hope Floats. Yes. Oh, my God. I love her. Yes. She's my favorite. Birdie and Bernice. Okay, we sidebarred so we hard. Did. Let's get back okay. to your story. So on March 6th, 1995, the Jenny Jones show was taping an episode where someone would come on and a secret admirer of theirs would reveal their crush. So Scott, okay, I hope I say his last name correctly. Scott Emadour. Sounds right. Sounds good to me. That's how it's phonetically spelled. Okay. He was a guest where he admitted he had a crush on his friend, Jonathan Schmitz. Oh. So, reminder, this is what, 1995? 1995. Fluid sexuality wasn't quite so much a thing as it is today. Right. So, that's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it was just kind of like the start of the movement of acceptance, I think. Um, bum, ba, da, ba. oh my god, I just did a Georgia. Hey, it's our MFM episode. So <laughs> you might as I did well. not mean to. That's so funny. <laughs> so both of them lived near each other in Lake Orion, Michigan. Where's that? That is kind of Detroit suburbs. I'm glad you knew because I genuinely didn't know. Have, Dave has family there. Oh, okay. So that always helps to kind of geographically know where you're talking about. Uh, Jenny Jones asked and encouraged Scott to share his fantasies about Jonathan. Oh, my. So he's mm-hmm. not just telling him, hey, I'm into you. Yeah, like she's like and kind of antagonizing, like, hey. Uh, Got to get that story. 
Yeah. Like, tell me your, like, who's going to, regardless, who's going to share fantasies like that? I am not. No. Not on national TV. I don't feel like I'm prudish about the conversation, but I also am not going to go on and be like, because Scott <laughs> obviously was gay, but his friend was not gay. No. Right. No. So that's, that's a big deal. Mm hmm. Yep. So after sharing, um, they brought out Jonathan, who hugged Scott, but then he stated that he was completely heterosexual. So, you know, I mean, he hugged him, he embraced him. Like, that's a cool. friend. Thanks for yeah. telling me. But, but no. We're just bros. No thanks. Right. So after the taping, the two were said, so this is kind of an alleged thing, that they had gone out for drinks and then had an alleged sexual encounter. Oh, my. Yeah. So that's pretty, I mean. That's, that's for being somebody who's completely heterosexual, that's not the hell completely. hell is he drinking? Yeah. Something. Something. Oh, no. Um. So according to testimony, three days after the taping, Scott left a suggestive note for Jonathan at his home. After finding the note, Jonathan purchased a shotgun and went to Scott's mobile home. So yeah. they went on the show. He revealed his crush. He said, sorry, no thanks. Then allegedly hooked up with him that night. Yep. Now they're back home in Michigan. And Scott's like, okay, he said no on TV. But then he didn't say no at the hotel. Maybe we can be so. secret lovers. <laughs> I don't know. You will never catch me sing on this podcast. So I shouldn't, but Danny I do. Is is your vocalist, ladies and gentlemen? <laughs> not the not the best. Um, okay, so he questioned Scott about the note, and then went to his car. So they had a conversation about this, and then he was like, "I'll be right back." Goes to his car, grabs the gun, goes back inside, shoots Scott in the chest oh, twice, no. and kills him. That's fucked up. Super. So after killing him, Jonathan gets back in his car, calls 911, and confesses to the killing. So he didn't even have, you know, and I have to think that it would have been more about the shame if they yeah. did have a hookup. Right. Um, and he did regret it. That it, he wasn't trying to get away with anything. He wasn't trying to, you know, Scott probably would have left him alone had he requested it. But it, this was just different times and he was right. so shamed by what happened mm -hmm. that he couldn't live with it. He couldn't have Scott around and he was okay with going to prison, yeah. ruining both of their lives. Yeah. That's I mean, crazy. I mean, like, had this happened maybe five, six years later? Right. Jenny Jones was still on the air. It's just crazy to think that things <laughs> but that things were so different. Right. Within in 1995. That yeah. doesn't seem like that long ago. Yeah, it was. We were 15 and we're only 25 now. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. So bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Don't do that math, people. Just 10 years. Just believe us. Um, okay, so at the trial, Jonathan's defense attorney claimed Jonathan was suffering from manic depression and Graves' disease. He was driven by to homicide by mental illness and humiliation. Yeah, so the shame. Right, but is it the shame of the sexual encounter or I if it think, was the... I would think the combination of 
Like he being is, on the show. Yeah. So there's a, a national popular television show going to come out where someone mm-hmm. gay professes his love for you. But you know, and I am sure that someone else somewhere knew that they actually did wind up hooking up. So the shame right. over the hookup, the shame over he the fact that it was deal. about to become news. Um, I mean, it became news. Yeah, it did. It was, it became the Jenny Jones murder. Um, he was found guilty of second degree murder in 1996. He was sentenced to 20 to 50 years in prison. Um, his conviction was overturned, but he was found guilty at retrial and the sentence was reinstated. That's uh, a mess. Yeah, it is. He was released from prison August 22nd of 2017. So he is now a participant in our society. A participant? He's a participant. Does he participate? I'm not sure. I opted to not. What happened with that episode of Jenny Jones? They never aired it. But they have aired so... I mean, I remember those episodes. And there was always one that was like a little scandalous. Like it was your wife's best friend or... And what's funny is... It's not funny. Nothing's funny. I'm sorry. Um, But what's strange to me is I thought they did air the episode because I've seen it so many times uh-huh. because they play have played it on the news right. and on TV specials so many times that I thought it did air because I'd seen it. Right. And you can find clips of it. I mean, all you got to do is just Google it. And the Jenny Jones see. murder. And I just, now was she ever sued? Do you know? Yes. So in 1996, Scott's family sued the Jenny Jones show. Good. Telepictures and Warner Brothers for ambush tactics and their negligent role that led to Scott's death. Absolutely. I mean, they weren't responsible for the murder. That was one man's choice. But when you're doing this type of thing, these are real people with real lives that Mm -hmm. have to go back home after they leave your stage. And that's just, I'm, I'm glad. Did they win? So the jury awarded his family $25 million. Good. Uh, the jury found that the Jenny Jones show was both irresponsible and negligent, yes, contending that the show intentionally created an explosive situation without concern for consequences. Absolutely. Um, the and judicial then, system gets it right for a change. <laughs> right. Imagine that. And then Time Warner's defense attorney stated that the verdict would cause a chilling effect on the industry. Good. That's a bullshit industry. I mean, we're As talking we're still about scandal, but yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, you know, that's again, that's people's lives and you have to take that into account. I, counseling is a big thing these days, but mm-hmm. I bet very much that those people left that stage with no kind of counseling, no There's kind no of follow, follow up. up. Mm-hmm. We're just going to blow up your life and send right. you home because it helps our ratings. So good. Right. But to play devil's advocate here. They are told ahead of time that they're there for a crush. That's what they claimed. And that it could be a male or female. Okay. So knowing this information, you still agree to go in and say, okay, this could be anybody. For me, I think it's on that specific case, when he was clearly uncomfortable, um, the whole, oh, tell him about your fantasies. Tell him about what you want to do with him. Right. No. No, you don't need to... Yeah. Egg it on. Yeah, you don't. You don't. I mean, just let them. I don't know. Those shows, I would, don't know if you ever could have paid me to go on one of those shows. No. Though. <laughs> no, if they called me, I'd be like, hell no. Just tell There's me. There's a lot of stuff you I'll can do. tell me now or just forget it. Right. I'm not coming. Right. 
Jerks. Yeah. So that's the Jenny Jones murder. It's wow. episode 40 of my favorite murder. All right. Well, my favorite Michigan-based episode was episode three about the Oakland County child killer. Uh, that was actually the first time that Michigan was featured on My Favorite Murder. And it was this completely shocking, bizarre, crazy case that mm -hmm. I knew nothing about. I had never heard of it. And so I was just, that's one that still sticks with me to this day. Sure. It's haunting. So because I already say lots of words, um, Oakland County child killer, we're just going to say the OCCK because um, <laughs> otherwise this will be a two hour podcast. Um, so the OCCK was a serial killer that preyed on young children in the Detroit area in the 1970s. While the true number of victims of the OCCK may never be known, the four confirmed victims fit a similar profile. They were all white children between the ages of 10 and 12 from middle class families Two boys, two girls. Hmm. The first victim was 12-year-old Mark Stebbins of Ferndale, which is a suburb of Detroit. Mark disappeared on February 15, 1976, while walking home from the local American Legion Hall where his mother was working. He told her he was going home to watch television, and then he was never seen again. Hmm. His body was found four days later in Southfield, which is a small town about five miles from Ferndale. Mm. He'd been beaten and strangled. There were rope marks on his wrists and ankles, which indicated he'd been bound during his captivity. That's so sad. Police believe he'd been kept alive for at least a couple of days before being killed. Now, while the crime itself was horrific, the most unsettling part was the condition of the body. Mm. Mark was found laid out neatly on a snowbank in the parking lot of an office building. His clothes, the same ones he'd been wearing the day he disappeared, had been recently cleaned and pressed. What? His body appeared to have been bathed and his nail beds had been cleaned. St oh, they got to remove that DNA. True. But they uh -huh. didn't really have that back then. Right. Yeah. We're talking 1970s. It's like a progressive thinking killer. <laughs> or just a really fucking weird person. Well, I mean, Avi. So 10 months later... On December 22nd, 1976, 12-year-old Jill Robinson packed a bag following an argument with her mother and ran away from her home in Royal Oak. That's a town that's about two miles from Ferndale where Mark disappeared. Mm -hmm. So lots of little suburbs, but they're all in the same Detroit area. Yeah, if anybody like from the Lansing area, we just call it all Detroit. Right, true. <laughs> Four days after, or I'm sorry, the following day, so the day after she took off, her bicycle was found abandoned behind a store in her neighborhood. Four days after her disappearance, her body was found neatly laid out on a snowbank. No. Within view of the Troy Police Department. <gasps> That's like... Less than 20 minutes from her home. So he laid her out in front of the police department. Oh, my... Um, she was fully clothed, still wearing her backpack, and had been shot in the face with a Aww. shotgun. She showed the same signs of recent grooming as Mark Stebbins. This is so bizarre. Isn't that so strange? The similarities between the murders could not be ignored, but police were hesitant to attribute them to the same killer at first. The method used to kill them was different, um, and one was a boy, one was a girl. Um, serial killers usually kind of stick to, to, the to one or the other. Mm -hmm. um, but then on January 2nd, 1977, 
Ten-year-old Christine Mihalik went to purchase a magazine from the 7-Eleven near her house in Berkeley, Michigan, Mm -hmm. just a few miles from where Jill Robinson had disappeared a week earlier. She never returned home. Nineteen days later, Mm. her body was discovered by a mail carrier in Franklin Village, which is less than 10 miles from where she disappeared. She, too, was found neatly laid out in a snowbank, fully clothed, She'd been recently bathed, and her nail beds were freshly cleaned. Mm-hmm. Investigators determined she'd been smothered to death and that she'd been dead for less than 24 hours, Aww. which meant that she had been held captive for, for nearly three weeks before she was killed. That's sad. That's that so sad. So scary. There was officially a serial killer on the loose in Oakland County. The media dubbed him the babysitter due to the way he <laughs> meticulously groomed the children before murdering them. Mass hysteria ensued. Authorities launched the largest manhunt in the country, and parents were hypervigilant. What were they hunting? Like, what were they looking for? The killer. They were just trying to figure out who was doing this shit. I mean, right. Yeah, they didn't really no have any strong right? leads. No. Okay. They had... In one of the girls that went missing, they had a description of a car. They had a description of a suspect, but they, it just wasn't panning out. Okay. Um, despite... All of the the vigilance and everyone being on guard a little bit more because in the 70s, people weren't on guard with their kids at all. No. Um, One more child would fall victim to the Oakland County child killer. Mm. On March 16th, 1977, two months after and five miles down the road from where Christine Mihalik's body was found, 11-year-old Timothy King borrowed 30 cents from his sister to buy candy from the drugstore down the street in their hometown in Birmingham, Michigan. He left with his skateboard tucked under his arm, and he also was never again seen alive. During the six days he was missing, authorities searched tirelessly. The OCCK's previous victim was held captive for weeks before she was killed, so they thought maybe we've got some time to find him while he's still alive. Right. right. Um, on that hope, his parents made emotional pleas to local news outlets. In one interview, his mother said, um, you know, Timothy, we want you home. When you come home, we'll have a special dinner. We'll have your favorite. We'll get Kentucky Fried Chicken and Oreos. Oh. Um On March 22nd, 1977, so four days after he disappeared, Timothy's body was found in a shallow ditch in the city of Livonia about a half hour from his home. He had been laid out neatly along the side of the road, his skateboard beside his body. What? His clothing had been pressed and washed. There were rope marks on his wrists and ankles, and he'd been suffocated to death less than six hours before he was found. So he was kept alive all four of those days until the very end. No. But those desperate pleas of his family on the news had not fallen entirely on deaf ears because during his autopsy, investigators found that he had eaten fried chicken shortly before he was killed. Oh, my So the killer was watching the news and saw that interview with his mom and fed him Kentucky Fried Chicken for his last meal. So, like, do I want to say that's so kind? (laughs) No, it's horrible. Is it, like, super creepy? I mean, and and in cleaning the children the way he did, I'm sure that he considered himself a caretaker in some ways. Yeah, this sounds like CSI episode waiting There was a Law & Order Uh episode very similar. Very similar. I remember it. Um, so the Oakland County child killer was never caught and remains anonymous to this day. 
Many suspects, nope, many suspects were investigated (laughs) over the years, including a wealthy young man by the name of Christopher Bush. Bush was the son of a high-level GM executive and a known pedophile. He lived in the same city as the OCCK's final victim, Timothy King. As police closed in on him as a suspect, he committed suicide in his parents' home in 1978. No. He was only 27. And after he died, the killings stopped. Hmm. So, aside from... Wait, are you... Is that enough crazy, or do you want it to get a little crazier? Because it gets a little crazier. I mean, I always like a good We're going to keep going. So aside from being a prime suspect in the OCCK case, Christopher Bush was also implicated in the North Fox Island child pornography ring in northern Michigan. I remember hearing so, about that. I read about that. Stay uh-huh. with me because this is where this all starts to sound like a Lifetime movie. It is. North Fox Island is an 840-acre patch of dense forest located in Lake Michigan between Michigan's upper and lower peninsulas. It was purchased by millionaire philanthropist Francis Sheldon, an heir to the Detroit Edison fortune, in the early 1970s. He claimed he was going to use the island for research and relaxation and had plans to turn at least part of it into a resort. He raised the forest and put in an airstrip. He built a glass and timber home for himself atop a dune. He paved roadways, sectioned off the land into individual parcels, but the resort never opened. Instead, Sheldon opened a nature and rehabilitation camp for at-risk youth under the name Brother Paul's Children's Mission. Mm-hmm. Sheldon had long been involved with organizations for children. He was on the board of directors at Cranbrook Boarding School, and he volunteered regularly at Big Brothers of America. Oh, I forgot to tell you, um, Francis Sheldon was from Ann Arbor, the home of the University of Michigan. Did he? Is he a Wolverine? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I'm really not sure. <laughs> By default, I would assume. And this all takes us back to episode one. Yes. So we're now at three and two. Mm-hmm. U of M is winning, but really, considering that we're racking up killers, they're losing. Yeah. Okay. So he's he's a volunteer with children's organizations. So it's not out of the ordinary uh, to anyone when he starts taking young boys from poor neighborhoods in the Detroit area on a private plane to a secluded island for a week of rehabilitation. He even received government subsidies and public donations to fund this project. Okay, so what kind of rehabilitation? Just like a nature resort, so counseling and here, let's ride horses for a week. Okay, so back then it would have been like, what a kind dude, like how nice. Nowadays we'd be like, motherfucker, stay away from my kid. Right, exactly. you weird. Exactly. Um. In reality, North Fox Island was the base for an international child pornography ring, which is exactly what we would think if someone tried to do and, something like that today. And that is why we think those exactly. things, because of people because like it him. happened. Mm-hmm. For over a year, Francis Sheldon preyed on some of the most vulnerable members of society, whisking them away to his private island where his millionaire friends would fly in to help manufacture, observe, and take part in the production of child pornography. The operation was discovered in 1976, and Sheldon fled the country, never to be seen again. Hmm. Right about the same time the North Fox Island child pornography ring fell apart, 
the Oakland County child killer took his first victim. So this is just a really. Okay. We know who this is now. You know, it's one theory. <laughs> and I, I focused on him so that I could include the part about North Fox Island because that to me is insane. Mm-hmm. Um, but there have been others and you could make a case for any one of sure. them. And I, we could convince you that that's who it was. Right. Um, so we really don't know. And this was really just a brief overview of an absolutely insane story. Um, so if you would like to learn more, there is a very well-researched podcast called Don't Talk to Strangers by Nina Instead, who is also from Michigan, mm-hmm. that is all about the Oakland County child killing. Specifically, that's all the podcast is about. Uh, we'll post the link on our website if, every, if anyone wants to check that out. So they never caught the killer? They never caught him. Nope, it's still an unsolved okay, case. Okay, so what episode is that? Of that was my episode favorite three. Okay. So the very first my time they covered murder. My thirdest murder. Is that what it's called? I think so. Probably. So thank you guys all so much for making us a part of your day. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at So Dead Podcast. You can also find us online at SoDeadPodcast.com and email us your feedback and story ideas to SoDeadPodcast at gmail.com. Murderinos, we love you and we are so thrilled to be part of such an awesome community. And now, the one and only time that we'll get away with saying this on the show, stay sexy. And don't get murdered. <laughs> <laughs>